If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, April the 25th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in our humble little studio deep in the heart of Stanford University's campus, Thomas Henriksen. He's an Emeritus Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, where he focuses on American foreign policy, international political affairs, and insurgencies. Tom Henriksen specializes in the study of U.S. diplomatic and military courses of action toward terrorist havens in the non-Western world and toward rogue regimes. And that is our topic for today, the rogue regime that is North Korea and what comes next on that peninsula. Peace to nuclearization, war from the vantage point of an American president trying to deal with North Korea, not unlike Charlie Brown perhaps trying to kick the football. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Greetings. Thank you. You have a column today in The Hill, and the headline is, Kim's concessions seem just too good to be true. They may be just that, and I want to read the lead, and then I want you to explain what you're getting at. Your lead, you wrote, quote, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, goes an old Wall Street proverb. It is also apt when mentally processing North Korea's latest burst of apparent, quote, unquote, free concessions. Explain, sir. Well, uh, what has happened in North Korea, this very difficult regime, uh, has over the last few months uh, announced several startling uh, declarations that first it was going to uh, agree to talks with the United States, President right. Trump. Uh, that was one. And after that thunderbolt sort of calmed down, there's been a series of others. Uh, for example, uh, in the intended meeting between the two, which will probably take place in June, uh, before that, Trump, uh, the, Trump and Kim Jong Un the meeting yeah, the because Kim, there's Kim, a Korean meeting coming on Friday, which we'll yeah, talk about in a minute. But Kim Jong, that's right. Mm -hmm. Kim Jong Un's meeting uh, announced with uh, President Trump, and uh, as part of this, of course, he said uh, Kim Jong Un has now said that we, uh, the North Koreans, would no longer object to military maneuvers between the South Koreans and the United States, which is very unusual, to say the least. Uh, they've objected all along about these. They saw these as preparations for attack on them. Next, they said that they didn't have to, the uh, United States did not have to draw down its 28,000 troops, which have been a part of its South Korean peninsula since the end of the Korean War in 1953. And even more startling, uh, they uh, said that they were no longer going to test their nuclear weapons or their long-range uh, missiles. All of that has uh, been almost too good to be true. Mm -hmm. And there's some skepticism uh, and I think some concern, some wondering, just a puzzlement, head-scratching why all of these things have happened and hence the title of, of the uh, essay that I wrote for the for Hill. And I think it's true that most analysts uh, uh, Korean watchers are a little puzzled, and we're watching a, a very interesting development uh, north of the, of the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, which cuts right across the peninsula between North Korea and, and South Korea. Right. Now, on Friday, Tom, uh, we're doing this podcast on Wednesday, so by the time you listen to this, uh, this may have already happened, but on Friday, South Korea's leader, uh, Moon Jae-in, is supposed to meet with Kim Jong-un. 
Um, a little background here. This is not the first time that the two countries have engaged in what we might call rapprochement. Uh, in 1991, the two Koreans signed a non-aggression agreement, for example. Uh, a year later, uh, they jointly voted not to seek nuclear weapons. We saw how that worked out. Uh, South Korea backed that up by giving out billions in aid and investment, I guess, to try to, try to make that not happen. Uh, and here we are today in the situation we are. But on Friday, what is historic is this. Kim becomes the first North Korean leader, Tom, to do what? To cross the inter Korean border and step foot in Panmunjom, the so-called peace village in, in, the, in, in the Korean DMZ. What is Kim's motivation? Well, that is a big $64,000 question. And there are lots of uh, speculation, lots of uh, scenarios why he's doing this. One, the one everyone hopes is he's seen the light that he's going to uh, disarm, that is to say, uh, turn over his nuclear weapons, and cease using uh, long-range missiles. That mm -hmm. is way too optimistic by most people's reckoning that this isn't going to happen. Uh, the other one is that, uh, and he would, of course, get many benefits for this if he did this. He would, he would get uh, some sort of financial aid. He would right. get the United States to pull troops out. Uh, he would become a world statesman. Uh, there are any uh, endless things happen, all of which in the past have been tried with, with him and hasn't worked out, as you, as you indicated. And so as a consequence, we, uh, we're very doubtful. There is also a kind of interesting speculation that he would commit, that is to say Kim Jong-un would commit to some sort of table-reversing uh, grand bargain with the United States, that he would divorce himself from his uh, ally in China uh, and align himself and, Nor and North Korea with the United States. It's a little far-fetched, but it's very interesting and it makes people think, could this be possible? Uh, from his point of view, it would be a very good thing to do mm -hmm. uh, because he has, as, did, as was his father, been tiring of the constant advice from Beijing. Beijing has tried very hard to get the North Koreans to follow its economic model. That is to say, opening up first with uh, uh, sort of a free enterprise or less controlled agriculture. Then that spreads into industry. And as China has taken off the wraps on its industry, it has flourished. Uh, and these were the ideas of Deng Xiaoping, uh, a very important Chinese figure back in the 1990s, who led the opening up of China to more uh, free enterprise systems without changing the political structure. Right. And some people think the Chinese have leaned on the North Koreans so hard on this that the, the North Koreans are tired of it, they're tired of this, uh, the, uh, the interference, and also they're tired of North Korea being uh, subjected to demands by some Chinese officials, I emphasize right. some, not all, some Chinese officials to step back on their nuclear tests and step back on their long-range missile, missile tests because this was inflaming the situation uh, in such a way that North Korea might be plunged into a war, Ch China would be sucked into this, there'd be a huge catastrophe for the United States. Right. It would upset all the Chinese plans to be the leading power uh, by mid-century. So that is one, it's a very interesting one. It's probably not going to happen, but it's made many people think uh, about North Korea in a different way. It does, I'm just trying to get my arms around the concept of, first of all, 
Kim doing that, and secondly, a Nobel Peace Prize going to Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. That's about as unlikely as a scenario as you would think. But let's continue on that for a minute, Tom. Let's just talk about how practically Kim Jong-un could open his country to the U.S. Let's put this in Stanford and Cal Berkeley uh, equation, if you will. If you lived on the Stanford campus and for 70 years you were educated, indoctrinated, brainwashed into believing that Berkeley was the devil, it was all things evil, how would you then open up your campus to the Berkeley campus? Similarly, how can Kim go to his population, which is just drilled day in and day out that the United States is evil and always should be rejected, how does he then turn to his population and say, no, we're going to welcome the United States to our society. And maybe it would help to explain a little bit how China made that pivot, because in 1972, after 25 years of isolation from the U.S., the Chinese government decided to make that pivot. Well, that's true. And China did do this. And China, of course, is still hostile to the United States in many ways. But you're quite right. It did reverse itself uh, with it, the Nixon going to China uh, venture in the early 1970s. And it turned China around in many ways. They had already been going with some split, we should remember, with the uh, Soviet Union. These two communist giants had been aligned for many years. In fact, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union, had helped China uh, quite a bit in its wars with, with Japan during World War II and also afterward uh, with its conflict with the United States. So they were aligned ideologically and diplomatically and practically, and they still uh, they, uh, uh, they did, did have us falling out. So it's possible. But you raise many practical questions when you say, how does this happen turning things on a dime? Uh, it took a while in, in China to turn things around so that uh, the Chinese uh, students are coming over here to the United States for education in droves. That probably wouldn't have happened uh, back in the day when uh, China had this tremendous animosity to the United States. So what Kim Jong-un would have to do this would be a very, uh, as, you've, as you've raised, a very difficult educational process right. to ta make his people suddenly see the United States as not uh, an enemy, but maybe even a friend or even neutral at first, and yet at the same time reverse his entire orientation toward China. Yeah. Uh, and to make China out as right. a culprit and the problem, this would be difficult. And his military... Uh, at the upper reaches, his uh, political uh, people within the, within the Workers' Party, uh, the Communist Party of, of uh, North Korea, would have great difficulty in this. This would be extraordinarily difficult to change. He would need a lot of arts and persuasion. However, being a communist society, in a top-down society, people can decree these things. Right. Uh, and they have happened. Inside Chinese or inside Russian society, for example, we go back to uh, 1956 and the famous Nikita Khrushchev speech, in which he spoke to the Communist Party's Congress, the 20th Party of Congress uh, in Russia, and said to them, Stalin was a bad person. Mm -hmm. He had a cult of personality. He imprisoned people who were loyal, executed many of his followers, uh, and he was thoroughly horrible. He, mis he misran the whole World War II against the Germans. Right. This was huge, coming down from Nikita Khrushchev, and Stalin had only been dead three years, died in 1953. So these sorts of things 
can happen within, within communist societies. Uh, there can be dramatic changes. So it's, it's not impossible, but it would be difficult. But it does require one thing, Tom, which is an extraordinary individual to make this happen. Mikhail Gorbachev, an extraordinarily talented man. Dong Xiaoping, very talented man. But what we know about Kim Jong-un, and granted it's not much, he's first of all, he's a very young man, right? He's what it is. He's in his 30s, isn't he? Yes. He's, right. a, he's a young man. Uh, we don't know how much bandwidth he, <laughs> he contains, how really bright he is, how imaginative he is, if he's able to think in diplomatic ways and chess two or three steps at a time. So that's kind of... That's kind of like, you know, betting quite heavily on a guy who we just don't know as much of a thoroughbred. Well, that's absolutely true. And, I, and, and many of us are very guarded. These are more sort of uh, thinking out loud ideas, yes. uh, kind of thought experiments. We don't know much about him. We know he was educated in Switzerland at some point in his life. Right. Uh, we, we think he's crafty and cunning. That we know because he has secured his own position. And apparently there was some opposition within the hierarchy against him. Uh, his uncle, for, exact, uh, for, for example, was executed because he was a little too pro-Chinese. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was also very crafty and may have been trying to build himself up uh, in case his nephew failed. Mm -hmm. There was some speculation. So he is crafty. And he's cunning, but being cunning doesn't necessarily mean you're imaginative. Right. Uh, and you're clever enough to pull some of this off. And he's not have a lot of experience. Nikita Khrushchev was in his 50s or 60s when he made his famous speech. He'd been around for a long time and witnessed a lot. Yeah. Uh, Kim Jong-un has not. So it's right. a very, it, I think it's a valid point, and we're just going to have to stay tuned. Yeah, Edie, I mean, a pretty cutting guy, but I don't think we consider him one of the world's great thinkers. Tom, let's now talk about the South Korean calculation. What's in it for them? Obviously, they have pressure. There's a hostile country to the north. They have a lot of artillery within range of their large population center in Seoul. But if you're South Korea, do you want to go along and sign a peace agreement? And also, Tom, isn't there a bit of a parallel between what happened with West Germany and East Germany once the, once the Berlin Wall came down and West Germany, in effect, inherited a very sick society in East Germany? Yes, that, that well, let me say this about South Korea. South Korea is a democracy, at least it's been a democracy yeah. since... Um, and, the, the, and, and to be clear, I'm not suggesting reunification, which will be brought up at some point down the road, that if they're going to settle a peace agreement and open up trade and talks, they're going to revive. Let's, let's rule it out. But just the idea that if you do strike a peace, you're going to start trading and exchange. And before you know it, the very strong South Korean economy is dealing with the very weak North Korean economy. So how do, what's in this for South Korea? Well, for, first, uh, South Korea, being a democracy since the early 1980s, is a divided society on this very issue. Mm -hmm. uh, they have hardliners who, who don't want to see any sort of unification. And even among the young people today in South Korea, there's not such an emphasis because they don't feel the same attachment to the North, who actually speak, the people in the North speak the same language, they're related, they have many of the same cultural traits. And so there is some reluctance to do this. It's a uh, sort of a generational turnover, the war being almost 70 years, sort of like Cubans in Florida. The, absolutely. The, more, the, uh, the younger a, the Cuban population in Florida, the less That's an excellent analogy, <laughs> that, that, the, that the, this younger generation is not so, not so pro-engagement. Uh, 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 it doesn't see that it has to unite. They like their life. They're a little worried by the things you brought up. If, in fact, this happens, if there's ha this is a kind of diminution of the, of the fighting, uh, and suddenly we have, as you mentioned, 
this analogy, this historical example of East and West Germany being reunited at, at the fall of Berlin Wall uh, in the early uh, 1990s. This was a big thing for Germany, which was a very, West Germany is a very large country at that time, over 60 million people. Uh, East Germany was only about 17, so it was a ratio in population about one to five. Mm -hmm. There was a feeling uh, in uh, Germany, West Germany, that this was hugely expensive. Hundreds of billions of dollars were spent on a very impoverished regime right. and, and impoverished part of their country uh, in the 19, uh, in, in af after the fall. And there was uh, still some discontent. And some people in East Germany are still not happy. And it's a scene of many of the extreme right-wing elements. It has not been an easy transition, and yet the Germans were, West Germans were better placed to do it than South Korea. South Korea has about twice the number of people as, as the North. Uh, it has uh, a very robust uh, economy, but not one so powerful that it can absorb North Korea uh, and, and roughly 20 million people uh, who are in bad financial straits. I mean, for example, the bridge you often see connecting North Korea and China was actually built by the Japanese in 1943. So much of the infrastructure, the roads, the bridges, the telegraph lines, the hydroelectric uh, enterprises, are oriented back to uh, the time the Japanese ran the country until 1945 when Japan right. uh, lost World War II. And so, so they haven't made much progress. It's a very impoverished region. It's going to talk, it's going to take a long, long, it's going to take decades, maybe 100 years even, to bring it up to where South Korea is. And so that's a daunting prospect. Right. And some, they don't want, on the other hand, they don't want a war. They're, the South Koreans are petrified by another war because, as you mentioned at the, at the top of this program, they do have many conventional miss missiles and artillery pieces aimed at Seoul, the capital city, which is a city, of, depending how you define it, but at least 20 million people. It's huge. And many, many of those people would be killed by conventional weapons, not, not nuclear weapons or biological weapons, but by conventional artillery, uh, rockets, and so forth. Right. And so they, they would like to see a, a peace. And, and so anyone who studies this and talks to the South Koreans, what they want is a peace settlement and a very slow, soft landing of the North. They don't want a sudden landing of the North on them. They want it to be slow. They want to manage the process, but they certainly don't want unification uh, in, in, a, in a matter of months or years. Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, Tom, he has a change of heart or a change of policy, and he goes from a first term, which is rather aggressive and belligerent toward the Soviet Union, to in a second term sitting down and talking to the Soviets, helped in large part by the great George Shultz. Reagan comes up with a very clever phrase in talking to the Soviets, trust but verify. So, Tom, if you are Moon Jae-in, Moon Jae-in, excuse me, I always butcher his name, Moon Jae-in, South Korea's leader, and you're sitting down with your counterpart in the North, do you trust? And if you trust, how do you verify? Well, verification is at the heart and of And let's talk about that issue. because there's news today about a nuclear facility in North Korea which apparently has collapsed. And I'm curious, Tom, as to when this happens, how do we find out? Are we doing this by satellite flybys of word of mouth? So this ties in the question of, okay, if you want to denuclearize, if you want to do peace, 
How are you going to crack that secret society, that the hermit kingdom? How are you going to get in there and let them actually let you verify? Well, that's the one demand that there can be no waffling on. Right. As I said in the article I wrote in The Hill, uh, United States can sign a peace treaty uh, with North Korea and South Korea can enter it, uh, ending the Korean War. There's no peace treaty between uh, the countries. That which, which the war ended, as I mentioned earlier, in 1953. There's been just an armistice. We can right. do that. We can, in fact, pull some troops out of South Korea. We can even make trade agreements with North Korea. We can, in fact, provide some financial aid, and I'm sure the United Nations would provide some, and probably the European Union. But the one thing we cannot, cannot waffle on or let go is verification that they're actually doing what they say they're doing. We can't turn it over to some arms control group uh, in the United Nations. We must, in fact, do it ourselves. And that means unrestricted access to every potential nuclear facility in the country. You mentioned the collapse at Pengjie, which is about 50 miles from the Chinese border. Mm -hmm. So the Chinese are, are monitoring this, right. mostly through satellites uh, and, and also through seismic uh, measurement devices because they feel that this uh, Pengji site has collapsed, that there was a very tall mountain, Mantam, that is no longer as tall as it used to be. And one of the reasons is that the cavern beneath it, which has held six different nuclear tests, has become weak. And in fact, some material has collapsed, lowering the mountain. And they've been using seismic uh, measurements uh, and have come up with a, uh, a, a geological shift of about a, uh, say, equivalent to an earthquake of about a 6.2. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty big. And that has happened. And there's a great concern in uh, China, not for just the fact that there's a seismic activity at during these explosions, the last one being on September 3rd, but also this could be a, a modern-day Chernobyl. That was the right. uh, faulty nuclear pr uh, plant back in the 1980s that exploded and, sp and spread nu uh, nuclear uh, reactive material all around Europe uh, in uh, Russia itself. And so there's some concern among the Chinese that this would happen, and it's so close to them. So China is watching too. And I think one of the reasons China is so interested in getting North Korea to demilitarize or at least arrive at some sort of slowdown is this concern that there'll be a, a nightmare on their own border. Which way do the winds blow in that part of the world? They blow east or blow west? Uh, they blow mostly toward, toward us, but it would still spread. I mean, with a, a, a very serious atmospheric uh, explosion, it would go all over the place. It would hit at Japan, South Korea, and we already get, as you know, some of the smog problems from China, which broke across the Pacific, so yes. we, this would be sucked up into those same sort of atmospheric trends. But they would spread generally in Northeast Asia. Let's talk now about Donald Trump, Tom, and let me put you on the spot. It's Wednesday, April the 25th. Will there be a meeting this year between Trump and Kim Jong-un? 
And now the tricky part of it, not just so much will there be, but where would it be? Because I read reports, Tom, that Kim might have a problem. He might not have an airplane that could take him very far in the world. You see all sorts of locations talked about as a possibility. Switzerland, which you mentioned because he went to school there. I've seen Helsinki. I've seen Prague. I've seen Oslo, Iceland, uh, Sweden. Uh, but uh, I've also heard Mongolia. Mongolia in part because then Kim could take a train and get him out of the embarrassment of having an airplane. So... Will there be a summit meeting, yes or no, and where do you think it would be held? Well, those, are, those, those places all have been mentioned, and there is a logistical factor, can he get there? Uh, and also, I think the Kim family has never been wild about flying anyway. They see that as too risky for, for some sort of missile shoot-down, <laughs> uh, and, and that's not uh, improbable. It could happen. Uh, but but the, the idea, I, the, uh, right now things are running along on rails for this meeting. As you mentioned early, the president of North Korea and uh, the president of South Korea are getting together uh, at, almost as we speak to iron out some of the de details right, right. of this pre-summit between the United States and North Korea. And uh, assuming they can find a place to have this, uh, then there, it is, there is always a prospect it could be canceled because mm -hmm. both these men, uh, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, for various reasons, might pull out at the last minute. We, mm -hmm. That's not inconceivable. Uh, they are b both uh, uh, very invested in the process. They also know that they have to be strong leaders uh, of their respective societies. That's expected of them. But if it takes place, then both have to come out as in a win-win sort of situation. That's what we hope for. That's awful tricky. Now, we do think there's lots and lots of talks going on already among lower-level officials. Right. That's, that's always been the case. We've always had some contact with the North Korean Shuzi through the United Nations in New York, but, but lower-level people. But there's always been some sort of dialogue at a very low level. But now we're at a much higher level, and we're beginning to uh, uh, witness that as the uh, Pompano's visit to uh, North Korea uh, to meet with Kim Jong-un uh, at Easter, and it came away with, uh, he came away with some sense that this could happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are tricky issues, some we've talked about already. The fact is you've got to have verification. Right. Uh, will American troops stay there? Will it be, will it be aid uh, to North Korea? What will they get out of it? Right. There's, uh, another, there's another word to bring up here, Tom, and that's the word preconditions. And there is a push saying Donald Trump should not have a sit-down with this man unless there are preconditions to the meeting. What sort of preconditions would you suggest? Well, I think the preconditions is that something's going to happen or the President of the United States is going to look as if he's been set up and he's been made a fool of. Right, because Kim gets an obvious propaganda victory here. If he is in the same camera shot as the President of the United States, he looks like his peer. And the North Korean media will make him look even greater than a peer to Donald Trump. So he wins by that just de facto. So there has to be something in it for Donald Trump. And the suggestion is there has to be something in it before he goes. That is, is absolutely true. One of the factors that we must consider, though, that I, and not many have argued this, but I will, that when Donald Trump accepted the uh, uh, invitation, which came through the South Koreans, was, was brought to him directly at the time of the Winter Olympics, uh, he almost had to say yes, or some had to make some reciprocal uh, reaching out. Because if he did not, 
if the North Koreans offered to meet with him and he rejected them out of hand, you can imagine how much he'd be vilified as not taking an opportunity for peace. Right. He would be attacked not, not only, I think, from the opposition party in the United States and opposition candidates who are now running for uh, president, but also the Europeans who have been after him, that he passed up an historic opportunity mm -hmm. to try to resolve the issues between the United States and North Korea and some at least try to bring down uh, the, 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 the level of rhetoric and, and the kind of brinkmanship that both these parties had engaged in. So he was under, I think, a fair amount of pressure. But once he agreed, you raise a point that he can't look terrible. Uh, or he'll have a lot of problems later on. He, he fashions himself as a great negotiator, business negotiator. He's right, written right. a number of books on this topic, how to win uh, in the art, of the art of the game or the game of the art, however he puts it. And so he's going to have to make sure that he gets something pretty big, pretty concrete from North Korea. Now, what, can that, what are the biggest thing he could do would be getting North Korea to stop testing permanently Mm -hmm. and get its weapon, also stop testing missiles and stop testing nuclear weapons and make that permanent and verifiable. That's the big thing. Anything less than that, people will say, well, it couldn't be, it might not be a failure. They might cover it up by saying we're going to have other meetings, we're going to work out details, but in principle, we both agree this is going to happen. And they both can walk away, if that, if that can do that. And then Trump would not look too bad. He, people say, well, it's, just, it's very difficult to do this, and he has to be given some benefit about to work this out. So that's the only way he might be able to cover this up. But you're quite right. right. It raises a lot of stakes for Donald Trump, more than it raises for Kim Jong-un. Right. And what if Kim Jong-un were to push back, not publicly but privately, and saying, okay, I'm going to stop testing nuclear, but you know what you're going to do? You're not going to come in and invade me. And what I remind him of is the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we take missiles out of Turkey and we privately tell the Soviets we're not going to invade Cuba. Well, that's true. Uh, that's some, that's as, you, as you bring up another analogy from the Cold War, the famous Cuban Missile Crisis, in which the United States looked good publicly uh, for stopping the, the, the Russians at the time right. putting in nuclear missiles into Korea at the same time, or into Cuba, sorry, uh, at the same time, uh, we, in fact, gave up a base in Turkey, uh, which, which was threatening uh, the, the Russians. So right. there might be some underhanded things. It's a little harder today to keep things like that quiet. Exactly. <laughs> Ken John Kennedy could maybe do it. He got away with other things. But it's harder for an American president to make these under-the-table deals. So who is driving American foreign policy right now, Tom? Because we don't have... Condoleezza Rice's and Colin Powell's and Henry Kissinger's and really large figures running the State Department and visibly doing foreign policy. We have Mike Pompeo covertly going over Easter weekend, and Pompeo is right now in limbo. He'll probably get confirmed by the Senate, but it has not yet. So who's driving this train right now? Well, that's one of the things that there are people concerned about that, but even the State Department is not staffed up properly mm -hmm. to handle something this big. Uh, and so we have the National Security Council, which is, reports directly to the president, House mainly in the White House. That's John Bolton. And uh, John Kelly, of course, uh, the, the head of that. Uh, John, John Bolton. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and he, the, of, of the entire operation. Mm -hmm. And then we also have uh, 
uh, Bolton, uh, who is considered a hawk, right. uh, a very big hawk. And so though that, that's a very interesting mix. So I would say it's probably being run a lot by the instincts of the President of the United States. Mm -hmm. It's his instincts that are, so if he has good instincts on North Korea, which a lot of people have not had, it's not an easy, it's, not a, it's an acquired skill, and it takes a lot of time to think it through, uh, he could, in fact, get himself in trouble, but he's going to be very wary of that. I also think that Trump does have the, 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 the penchant for pulling something out. I mean, he doesn't care. He would walk away if he had to, I think. So how comfortable are you with the concept of foreign policy being driven by the seat of Donald Trump's pants? Well, I, it, it all depends, you know, in, in the actual how the outcome. I mean, if it works out fine, right. that would be wonderful. But we're also a little worried that something would, could distract him, uh, sure. something much minor, that uh, this, this is a very serious issue, uh, and he will be judged not just in relations between North Korea and the United States, but larger relations. I mean, after all, he's entering into a, some sort of agreement with North Korea while being also very highly critical of the agreement that uh, President Obama entered into with Iran. Mm -hmm. uh, and so people will be constantly comparing him uh, to what President Obama did with, with Iran to get them to stop nuclear testing and going uh, facilitating the production of, of uh, plutonium uh, there. And so he, he will be judged that way as well and judged elsewhere if things don't work because right. superpowers can't just do one thing. They have to do everything and they have to do it well. You alluded to China and its border concerns over North Korean nuclear testing. Let's talk about the other two nations uh, involved in the past big five conversations with North Korea, and that's Japan and Russia. Russia doesn't get much mention these days, but where there's, where there's intrigue, there's Vladimir Putin, it seems. What are the Japanese thinking right now, and what's the Russians' involvement in this? Well, the Russians have been s sort of relegated to a seemingly back seat. Russia does have a very small border, about 100 miles with North Korea. Right. And it's always been a player in this region, sometimes uh, at, swords, uh, uh, at sword point with China, because they both want access to the upper regions of the Pacific. Uh, Russia has that currently with Vladivostok, the, the very famous port. And in the past, Russia has been the chief patron of, of North Korea, not China. China was too weak initially after World War II, and so Russia was in fact the, the uh, arms supplier of uh, North Korea when it invaded the South in 1950. It also provided the first nuclear reactor a few years after the Korean War because they were constantly being pressured by North Koreans that North Korea wanted a nuclear capacity because it felt the United States had used this as leverage against them and China in the war. So they've always had this penchant for a nuclear uh, reactor. And so they, ru the Russians have also been brought into play sometimes cleverly by the North Koreans as to offset China's dominance. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the, the uh, North Koreans, being a small state and, and relatively weak against the great powers, uh, are, are conscious of this. And they will play the, the, the Russian card if it comes to that. Uh, but Ch Russia has not provided the same interference either with them. Uh, in the case of Japan, 
it's it's a little different. Japan, of course, we know as the uh, bad person, a bad guy coming out of World War II, and they've always struggled to kind of overcome that. And so working with North Korea has been more challenging for them, perhaps if they'd been on the other side of the war, if they'd have been an American ally rather than the American enemy. Uh, they're very worried. Uh, they're worried because they don't want to be left out of, of negotiations. Uh, for example, when North Korea ceases testing long-range missiles, that doesn't mean as much to Japan because they're within range of middle-range missiles. Right. So they want to see all missiles testing stop, not just long-range but other short-range. They're concerned that if anything blows up uh, on the North Korean uh part of the, of, of the world, but the, the, the radioactive dust will come to them as well as it, it goes to South Korea. Uh, they also, as I say, have this odd, uh, they're literally odd man out because much of Asia has thought of them as uh, the, the uh, aggressors in World War II, and so they've had to overcome that. They, they do have a very good relationship with uh, Donald Trump, mm -hmm. uh, Prime Minister Abbey is in uh, very close to just, the, to, just but, in Florida but, recently with Trump. But, yeah. but he has some them. problems himself, right. and he may not uh, mostly domestic problems, and he may in fact not be as secure, which would be I think a problem for the United States at least initially when a new leader of Japan was selected. But but they are concerned. They do, they want to become a player, but on the other hand, it's difficult for them to do so. Could China and Japan be brought in, Tom, as a bank? Because it seems to me that any agreement with North Korea is going to lead to one thing, and they're going to want money, and a lot of it. And Donald Trump hardly goes a day. Anytime he does a press conference with a foreign lady, he did with Macron the other day, he points out the United States spends a lot of money overseas, and it's money that could be better spent at home. So I don't see how Donald Trump could go to Congress and ask for a few trillion dollars to prop up North Korea. Wouldn't you have to turn to other nations like China and Japan and tell them that you got to chip in? He will do it, I think. Uh, and it had there is a precedent, a very good precedent for this. Back uh, when Clinton, President Clinton, uh, made an agreement with uh, North Korea, which was signed in Geneva in 1994, uh, the, the North Koreans did not want to deal directly with either Japan or South Korea for different reasons. They, they hate the Japanese, uh, and they also dislike the regime to their south. So they set up an entity called KEDO, which stands for Korean Economic Development Office, and this entity was funded largely by uh, the Japanese, the South Koreans, but the North Koreans could save face by not having to say, well, we're dealing with the people we hate, uh, we're actually dealing with this group, KEDO. Uh, and they will provide uh, the resources for the implementation of the agreement, which entailed the building of two nuclear reactors at several billion dollars. And as a consequence, they did. The, the Japanese put up the money, uh, and so did the uh, South Koreans. We got some money from Saudi Arabia, small amount, smaller amounts. Right. But so the Japanese, I think, are willing to do that, and the South Koreans definitely are willing to do that if they can get some sort of uh, meaningful. And security pact, which is, of course, uh, can be can be verified. Mm -hmm. Okay, so to recap, you think the meeting is on? You think it's going to happen? Yes, I think I think so far it'll happen unless something untoward happens. Uh, both sides have have made commitments to it, mm -hmm. uh, and North Korea has probably, in some ways, made the most. Uh, 
high high profile commitments by saying it's going to stop ceasing uh, its missiles, it's going to st uh, testing its missiles, its nuclear weapons, uh, and also that the American troops can remain. That does buy them a certain amount of leverage because, look, they, they're doing so much. Right. The United States has to respond in a positive way in order to keep them uh, on a permanent uh, basis, not just the fact that they're suspending nuclear and missile tests, but also that they're going to uh, uh, make this permanent. That's what we want. We want it permanent and we want it verifiable. Okay, final question, Tom. We saw something rather remarkable in Washington, D.C. today. The president of France spoke before Congress. He spoke in English. He received 30 standing ovations. This is Congress, Tom. This used to be the land of freedom fries. We're not going to use the word French. We're going to call them freedom fries. But here is Congress just going wild over the French president. So let's apply this to North Korea. How many steps, how many years away are we from Kim Jong-un doing what Nikita Khrushchev did, coming to America, coming to Disneyland? <laughs> it, it, you know, there's one thing that one of our colleagues used to say, things are so difficult saying impossible at the time, but when they happen they look back upon is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I think this case, it, anything in the realm is possible. We've had certain dramatic turns around uh, in the past uh, by uh, communist governments. Uh, they don't happen frequently, but they can happen. Uh, we've seen the Soviet Union collapse uh, in our lifetime, something that those of us that lived before said this will never happen. Uh, they'll continue on. Maybe the communist system would be overthrown. They'd become under a military dictatorship, but it didn't happen. The, the, the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, all of their states that they had roped together, over a dozen, split off. Uh, these dramatic things happen, and sometimes they happen very quickly, uh, much quicker than I think. But when you look back, you say, yes, it was inevitable. It can happen. So I think there's, there's always a prospect uh, of change in leadership, uh, of a new way of looking at things. Uh, things could happen in China that discourage North Korea. Uh, things could happen in the United States do encourage them, uh, change of leadership. So I, I'm, uh, I'm slightly encouraged, uh, but I'm an optimist. Okay, in anticipation of that meeting, tell our listeners a good Tom Hendrickson book or two to pick up to, to bone up. Oh, well, uh, I, I've done a book that came out uh, just last year called Cycles in American History, uh, Foreign Policy Since the uh, uh, Cold War, Cycles uh, in American Foreign Policy Since the uh, Cold War, which deals with how American policy seems to cycle in and out. It goes from activism to uh, a more disengaged mood, uh, and the presidents we've had since the Soviet Union collapse. Another book, uh, which is a Hoover book, is Eyes, Ears, and Daggers, which deals with uh, how the Central Intelligence Agency and the Special Forces have worked together. It's been a very uh, uneven relationship over many years, been some real problems in it, uh, from the founding of both these entities after World War II. Uh, and uh, they seem to have gotten it right on the war on terror. They do collaborate a lot. It's very hard, of course. It's not reported daily in a newspaper. But they are active that the CIA does have field offices, which helps the special forces. And the special forces do collaborate or work with the CIA in taking down terrorism. So that's what, that's what the book is all about. Okay. Well... We are embracing the French president. We may be talking to the North Korean president. Times do change, John. Thank you. Tom Hendrickson, enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Tom Hendrickson and his colleagues your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts in the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.